This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I'm so excited to be joined today by Daryl Bazell, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Daryl. Good morning. To get us started today, Daryl, I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about how you came to higher education as a profession. Sure. I have somewhat of a non-traditional pathway to working in higher education. I actually uh, began and spent uh, most of my career working in state government in the state of Wisconsin, uh, starting as an intern at a paraprofessional level and eventually working my way up over 18 years to run a, a large, complex state agency. And got to the end of that tenure, saw a change in the governorship and decided I might try something different. Uh, and the job at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for the Vice Chancellor for Finance Administration um, was open and I, I was encouraged to apply. And lo and behold, I was hired to go work at my alma mater and to be able to continue a career in public service. That's awesome. So your background in state government, were you doing particularly things focused on finance or was it some, something completely different? It was mixed. Um, early on in my career, I developed a skill in, in budget and fiscal management, which is closely aligned with um, policy development. So early on, I found myself working with governors and uh, policymakers uh, around a whole range of, of issues. And in essence, I used that skill in, in, in budgeting and, and policy um, development to navigate around state government to do things I had a strong interest in. So I moved around from working on juvenile justice issues to Healthcare to working on conservation and environmental issues to agricultural issues um, before I, I moved over to the university. Interesting. I wonder if you could share with us what what that background helped you to do once you entered academia. It sounds like you had a really wide variety of experiences in state government. Well, I, I think the, the thing that really carried forward was the the, the ability to think broadly to quickly um, diagnose an, an, an issue. Um, the ability to, in Wisconsin, of course, where the university's rules are very tightly um, aligned with state government, the fact that I understood how fiscal and administrative matters um, would work um, through from a process standpoint, I think that's a skill that translated. But but really, just the ability to work with decision makers and, and to be a creative problem solver, probably the skills that uh, translated the most. Excellent. And then I wonder if you could think back to when you first entered academia, what was different and challenging for you as contrasted to, to what you were accustomed to in state government? Oh, I have a great uh, example of that. I actually played out my very first week as the chief financial officer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that was at the time, Wisconsin was going through some very difficult um, fiscal times. We were within about a week 
of the governor announcing major, major budget cuts. And as I began my tenure at the university, uh, it became clear to me that the university was not prepared and had not done any scenario planning around mm-hmm. the eventual cut. And so I, I helped the, the, the chancellor put together a plan. A few days later, I attended my first dean's council meeting, and I started out um, describing this memorandum from the chancellor as a directive from the chancellor. And so the meeting stops, and the chancellor then led a several-minute discussion with the deans explaining to me that he doesn't direct anything. And so, mm. I, of course, working in state government, you know, where a governor is a chief executive officer and the governor can decide things. And so moving into an environment where there was a different approach to decision-making um, was, was quite a, um, an eye-opener for me early on in my career. Now, now, of course, the chancellor can make things happen, but you mm. use different language and you work with things <laughs> and others a bit differently. It's, it's less, quote-unquote, directive. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. When you first entered higher ed just as a profession, was there anything that you wish you knew but you didn't when you first walked into it outside of things like what you just described? Well, again, the, the, the culture, of course, um, you know, uh, is always the first thing I want to learn about an organization. And, mm-hmm. and, and so when I started to learn the culture and, and understand the, 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 that there are multiple centers of power and decision making in higher ed, that, again, things are not hierarchical, um, but rather there are a lot of autonomy and um, things tend to be very decentralized. And um, that, that was a, a really big change for me that, you know, mm-hmm. on, on one hand, I really want to focus on efficiencies and trying to find a way to better leverage our dollars, but found very mixed interest in that, that, that people um, at, ten, at times tended to prefer to have local autonomy. And the fact that the institution as a whole was a bit inefficient didn't seem as troublesome to, to, to some folks as I would have imagined. Well, let's fast forward a little bit and talk about your current role at the University of Texas at Austin. What would you say is most exciting about your job today? Well, it's a large portfolio, and I came, I took this job about two and a half years ago just as a CFO, and about a year into the job, I took responsibility for the operational side of the institution as well. So bringing two distinct portfolios together has been quite an interesting challenge and I, one I've enjoyed um, quite a bit. But of course, uh, the job here in Austin is a bit different than the role in Madison, so it presents a different set of opportunities for me to work on to help you know move this institution forward. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. What's what's different at the University of Texas from where you were before? Well, I, I think the thing that stands out the most is is simply um, you know the challenge that confronts every institution of higher education, particularly publics, in the sense that we're all looking for ways to grow our revenue streams and and the mm-hmm. kinds of opportunities that present themselves in Austin look very different than the kinds of revenue-generating opportunities that present themselves in, 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 in Madison. And, and mm-hmm. so in Texas, there tends to be a little more um, opportunity to explore you know, public-private partnerships, um, the ability to, better, to, to leverage the brand. And, and so those kinds of um, opportunities are, 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 are different for me. And I, and I find the challenge um, very rewarding. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about partnerships and potentially innovation. I, I would assume that when you're trying to create new revenue streams, um, you have to have look towards pockets of innovation to figure out different ways to do that. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Well, I'll just think. Of, I'll just give you something you know that, that's fairly foundational, fairly basic. You know, the, the mm-hmm. university here has uh, quite a few um, uh, real estate assets around the Austin community mm. and beyond. That are where the land is just sitting barren, and hmm. I'm looking for ways to to monetize those assets and to put some of those lands to use in ways that are 
actually productive towards our mission, but to the extent that we don't need those lands for our mission, I'm looking for ways to monetize them. And, and when, when I talk about monetizing them, I'm not looking for a quick dollar. Now, when you think about the challenge that confronts public higher education with respect to um, declining state support, um, the, the challenge in increasing tuition given you know, the student debt load issue we're all trying to manage, we're all trying to find other revenue streams. And, and it's my contention that there is no third revenue stream that's going to solve that problem. It's really about mm -hmm. a series of small opportunities. So when I look to monetize real estate assets, I'm looking for a steady stream of revenue over a long period of time. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's the, the approach we're taking here. And I, I think we're going to have some success with that. And then could you talk a little bit about partnerships? Or is there anything particularly exciting that you're doing that might be a little a little bit non-traditional? Yeah, one of the things we're doing, for example, we started a medical school um, at, at our institution two years ago. And like many um, urban um, institutions, we're fairly landlocked. And, you know, the, the medical school is built um, at, the, at the edge of the campus. And adjacent to that is land that was um, contro that's controlled by something called the Central Health District. It's simply the local public health entity that's responsible for health care in, in Central Texas. And so we're working with them on a series of land transactions that will not just allow us to expand the medical school as, as it needs to grow, but also in a way that leverages partnership for them. So we're in the process now of constructing a 350,000 square foot building um, that will house the medical school, but also some private partners who will work with mm. us on innovation in the healthcare space. And so that's very interesting in working with local government on the real estate transaction, but also in the in, in terms of working with um, a, a potential um, healthcare partner with the medical school, is, 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 is I find very um, rewarding as well. Daryl, what are you doing now that you never imagined you'd be doing 10 or maybe even 20 years ago? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think one of the things I enjoy the most about my, my role um, is the, the ability to interact with students and have a, a more direct you know, impact on the, on the mission of, of, of the institution. So I'm finding those kinds of opportunities, whether it's at times sharing personal experiences and encouraging particularly students of color um, who sometimes are, you know, have a challenge in, in, in persisting at, at, at large um, um, institutions or, or, or just the ability to help them around some of their own problem solving. So I didn't have a lot of those opportunities earlier on. And certainly as I worked in the, um, the state government, didn't have those mm -hmm. opportunities. But that opportunity to, to be a little hands, somewhat hands-on with students is, is very rewarding from a personal vantage point. Daryl, who would you say has served as a professional mentor to you? Can you think of anybody in particular and what you might have learned from them? Yeah, well, I have an interesting take on that. There's no one specific individual. I'm a, a kid who grew up in a tough environment um, mm -hmm. and one in which people in my, um, this is say in my environment, weren't succeeding. And so I, I early on just watched in and everyone. And so I learned from neg negative examples. But when I found people who were doing things the right way, I, I watched them very, very closely. And, and that's been true throughout my life. If there's one person I would single out, it would be the person who actually encouraged me to apply for the vice chancellor for finance administration job at University of Wisconsin-Madison, a, a gentleman named John Torfey, who actually worked for state government when I started as an intern. Um, very bright guy who eventually took the higher ed job. And, and when he was ready to retire, he asked me and, and really encouraged me to go after the job. And I had really watched him just very closely throughout my career. I just saw him as someone who was very bright, a, a real problem solver, very unflappable, 
and and just very creative um, within, of course, um, the bounds of, of the law and integrity. He could always find a, a, a pathway forward. So I would probably, you know, single him out more so than anyone. And then what do you do with that approach? It sounds it's a little, like it's a little bit more of a, a role model approach and just kind of aligning yourself with people who um, have been successful. How do you do that when you flip it around? Do you try to be a role model for others? Do you do anything on, on a mentoring basis, on a one-on-one basis with where you would be the mentor? I have, um, that's certainly part of my life mission. Um, it was a conscious choice to join the public sector. And mm-hmm. so my, my personal mission is to do what I can with, with my life to really improve the human condition. And that extends to my, not just opportunities at work, but also privately. Um, I spent 20 years as a big brother, um, was mm. fortunate to be named Big Brother of the Year a couple years ago. Wow, um, congratulations. Yeah. So I work with young people. I do the same thing in higher ed. I've always had students, um, both at mm-hmm. Madison, but also here at Austin, who I work with hands-on. I've, I've worked with student government leaders. And so I, I also serve as a mentor to other professional staff. And interestingly enough, I've actually done some with some of that with um, um, with department chairs and some other faculty who oftentimes see me as a creative problem solver who just come meet with me periodically just to just to share ideas and give perspective. And so I, I do as much of that as I can. Um, it's, it's something I think that fits with my my personal mission in life. And as I always remind people how much they're paying for the advice. Um, and as, as long as they're, they're, they're willing to keep coming back, I'm willing to keep offering my thoughts. Daryl, what would you say is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today? What keeps all of you up at night? Well, I've alluded to one, and that's really the the fiscal challenge that that, that confronts Mm -hmm. all of us. And it's certainly true at private institutions as well. It's not something unique Mm -hmm. to to public, but really trying to grow that revenue stream. But I think the other thing that that challenges all of us as, as CBOs is really trying to rally the institution around a common agenda, whether it's around efficiencies or trying to make sure that the um, administrative services we provide are, are truly responsive and, and, and effective in addition to being e- efficient. That, it's, that's a challenge in higher ed where the academic focus isn't always on those kinds of things. As, you know, in a highly decentralized environment like the ones I've worked in, to have an impact on those kinds of things requires close collaboration with folks who do their work in schools and colleges along with the provosts and deans. And that's not always the focus of provosts and deans. And so, Getting people focused and aligned over a, a sustained period of time to facilitate the types of change and, you know, whether it's in efficiencies or effectiveness, uh, that I think finding ways to do that is, is a thing that I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about. And I'm sure my colleagues are always thinking about ways to, to work collaboratively with um, um, leaders on the academic side of the house, if you will, to, to really um, improve the, you know, the services that we provide. What would you say the skills are that are needed in order to accomplish that successfully? Well, there's one that's there, there are many, but one that stands out above and beyond beyond anyone is is the need to build trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really about establishing a trusting relationship with academic leaders and and showing that you can add value and that you can do it in a way that still allows them in the, you know, to, to proceed with the things that they need to focus on. So for me, I think the trust proposition is, is, is the enabler for many of the things that we need to get accomplished at, at our institutions. And then just flipping that question around a little bit, what would you say is the biggest opportunity for CBOs today? Well, I, I would say I, I have a lot of sayings, and one of them is that we live in a target-rich environment. Um, and another is that if you, every place you look, there's opportunity. 
And, and so I would urge my, my, my colleagues across the country to really understand your institution and, and, and the kinds of things that you might do that, that are, um, of substantive nature that, that are, that's worthy of, um, engaging, you know, academics and, 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 and others. And so find the things that really moves the ball forward at your institution and, and to think about who the key players are, um, to help you know, that can enable your success or really get in the way of success. And those are the folks you really want to make sure you're building, a, you know, a, a, a trust relationship on an interpersonal level but while you're at the same time making the business case um, for the change. So I, I would say look at things that are really situation specific. I think for most of us, those targets of opportunity at a high level will be around creating, again, those financial revenue streams and looking for ways to add value and to create more efficient processes. Can you think of an example, Daryl, of something that maybe you would have done a little bit differently in your tenure as a CBO, just looking back, knowing what you know now? Uh, yeah, I could think of one where I actually had tremendous success, but I really would have done differently had I had it do hmm. over again. And, and, and what I'll point to is a strong commitment I've had throughout my professional career around this concept of process improvement. You've heard me uh, make reference to efficiencies mm-hmm. a few times. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really about trying to always make things easier, more streamlined, more responsive, and to always question the way we do things um, and to try to get my staff comfortable with the notion that you never quite arrive. There's always an opportunity to get better and, and, and in terms of the way we serve um, the academic mission. And so my experience at Wisconsin um, I had great success with process improvement. Uh, we did scores of successful projects, large and small. But given the culture of that institution at the time, I used the bully pulpit a bit. I used my authority to work with mm-hmm. deans and to encourage and to push some of this change forward. And again, we had a lot of success, but I, I think we would have had greater success over time, um, particularly as I exited the institution, had we done a little more more of a grassroots approach. In other words, Doing mm-hmm. more selling of the concept to directors and some of the people who have more direct responsibility for those, some of those processes. It's not that we didn't engage them, but I didn't do mm-hmm. a, a, a grassroots approach and work my way up through them because my fear was I, I, I would have gotten blocked and never would have been able to launch. And so the idea was mm-hmm. to use the bully pulpit, work down, and then to build support um, bottom up as, as you show success. And I, and I think I could have been a, a little more effective with that in ways that these efforts would have been more sustainable as I exited the institution. And that kind of goes back to that concept of trust that you were just talking about a few moments ago. Yeah, so it was there, but I don't know how much it was extended to other people working on those projects. Daryl, when you look at the next generation of upcoming or potential CBOs, what do you see? Well, I see a changing environment. This change has been underway for quite some time. You know, if you think about the, the traditional uh, model of who a CFO is, it's typically someone with an MBA, uh, someone mm-hmm. who grew up, in higher ed who aspire perhaps to a role like this. Um, other times you might see someone come from state government, sometimes, you know, form as maybe a state budget director or someone with a very high, you know, set of fiscal responsibilities. I think what we're seeing more today are, are you know, particularly as we see more and more people retiring with the, you know, baby boomers still exiting the workplace, we're seeing mm-hmm. um, presidents and chancellors focus more on what they really need. And that's someone who can be a strategic partner with them, someone who understands finances and the administrative side of the institution who can sit with them 
to facilitate change. So in other words, it becomes more premium on leadership skills and, and, and those type and other types of soft skills as opposed to more the technical skills, the ideas that other staff can bring some of those skills to the table. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think some of that was being done out of necessity. As we saw mm-hmm. so many retirements, I, I, I think we saw presidents and chancellors becoming a little more creative and really asking themselves the hard question, what do I really need out of a, out of a CFO? And, and I think the leadership and partner um, uh, skill sets you know, came, you know, has come more to the fore. And so, and so for me, that's what I, I think it's more that type of skill set that um, we really need to to um, cultivate, and 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 I think that's the thing I, I I'm saying chances and presence. I'm um, I'm really wanting more as a bottom line. Anything else you'd like to share that I've neglected to ask today? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I can't think of anything <laughs> obvious. Um, you know, each of us has you know common challenges, but. The way we solve them at our institution, from my perspective, has to be institution-specific, given Mm -hmm. that each institution has a different set of dynamics, each has its own unique culture. And so for me, it's really about that translation around the big challenges that confronts all of us into a strategy that can be locally applied based upon the culture and set of dynamics at that institution. Well, thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us on the podcast today and sharing just a few of your many insights with our listeners. Well, I enjoyed the opportunity and and, um, uh, look forward to listening to other podcasts as you continue the series. You can find out more about Daryl and today's episode by visiting the conferences and e-learning section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Daryl and myself, I'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education.